You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Fake tweets from hijacked news accounts mark U.S. presidential transition, Bankbot Android Trojan evolves, and Skyfin will quietly buy stuff you don't want from the Google Play Store. An ill-named Dharma ransomware hits an Indian pony site, Lloyd's Bank discloses DDoS attacks, the SEC looks at Yahoo's breach disclosure record, and the FBI is taking an interest in the gentleman Krebs-fingered as Mirai's master. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Monday, January 23, 2017. Both the New York Times and the BBC had their Twitter accounts hijacked recently. The Times hijackers yesterday tweeting falsely that Russian President Putin had intentions to launch missiles against the U.S. And the BBC's hijackers tweeting Friday, equally falsely, that U.S. President Trump had been wounded in an assassination attempt during his inauguration. Protection racketeers at Our Mine admit collaborating in the caper, but said their unnamed partners composed the tweets. Our Mine has become well known for its shakedown operations. They seek to preserve an implausible illusion of legitimacy as a security auditing service, but as may be seen in the Hills account, as in others, few, if any, buy this. Our mind seems today to be distancing itself from both incidents, disavowing responsibility for the tweets and suggesting to the BBC that Our Mind's hacking was only coincidental with the bogus news stories. Still, they're offering their services, as in this note to the New York Times. Quote, Message from Our Mind to at NYT video. Contact us to tell you how to fix the issue. End quote. The week opens with news of fresh Android threats. Tripwire is following the progress of recently discovered banking trojan BankBot, which is built to loot bank accounts by exploiting admin privileges on Android phones. BankBot's source code has begun circulating on at least one criminal hacking forum. Dr. Webb has also identified a new Android threat. They're calling this one Skyfin. It's a second-stage infection that so far has been observed in phones already compromised by the Android downloader malware family. Skyfin quietly infests a device's local Play Store app to make unwanted purchases. The SANS Internet Storm Center has a rundown on Sage 2.0, a variant of CryLocker first described by Bleeping Computer last month. Sage 2.0 ransomware is now being observed in spam, hitherto associated with Serbear, so again the criminal markets are showing their propensity for evolution and adaptation. Specific ransomware victims late last week include the St. Louis, Missouri, USA public library system and the RacingPulse.in pony betting site operating out of Bangalore, India. The Dharma ransomware strain hit Bangalore. There's no word yet on which variety affected St. Louis. The St. Louis librarians aren't paying up. 
Instead, they're wiping and restoring the approximately 700 affected machines. That won't be cheap or pain-free, and it will in fact take a few days to accomplish, but the librarians are determined to hang tough. Last week, Google released an open-source prototype of a system for discovering and verifying public encryption keys, called Key Transparency. For details, we checked in with Professor Matthew Green, cryptographer from Johns Hopkins University. We've known for a long time that you know, one of the, the vulnerabilities in encrypted messaging systems is that uh, they use key servers, or at least many of the commercial ones do. So what that means uh, is that if you want to talk to somebody, the first thing you have to do is you have to get their public key. Uh, in the olden days, when we did that with things like PGP, it was a very painful process. We used to have to go, you know, have key signing parties and, you know, go to key servers and do all of this stuff. All of these newer instant messaging systems have, have gotten so easy to use, and they've done that mostly by making that transparent. So you don't know that you're getting somebody's public key, but you're still doing that. And that means you're relying on some server somewhere to hand you the right public key and not give you the wrong one. That's a vulnerability, or that's a potential vulnerability in many of these apps. And so take us through how key transparency is uh, addressing that situation. Well, so so two bad things can happen to you if you trust somebody else's key server. So a, a person can break into the uh, key server, and they can you know actually give out the wrong public keys to people so that people are encrypting to the, the bad guy instead of to you. Uh, the other thing that people can do is they can impersonate your SMS and they could register a phone to your account or even add another phone to your account if they guess your iCloud password. Um, and so, so that's the problem that key transparency tries to deal with. Many services will tell you they'll send a message to your phone or something when that happens, but there's nothing guaranteed about that. If somebody hacks the server, they can prevent that message from getting to you. Key transparency takes us kind of a, a big step further. And what it does is it basically produces a cryptographic proof that your phone can check, which proves that the key the server is giving out to people is actually the key that you uh, you know you want it to be. It's actually your public key. So your phone and other people's phones can actually check that the server is behaving honestly. And so what what are the likely areas where we're going to see this put to practical use? Well, I mean, I think the first place we're going to see this is in instant messaging systems, hopefully very soon. Um, so the the original key transparency project uh, was created at Google and I think at Yahoo uh, because Google and Yahoo were working together on this E2E plugin for, for, G, for mail, both Gmail and for Yahoo. Unfortunately, that project hasn't really produced a whole lot. We, we just still don't have, you know, a production version of the E2E plugin. Uh, so the key transparency server, which is now open source, hopefully will be adopted somewhere that's you know that that where it can actually make a difference. And the places where it can make a difference are in encrypted messaging apps like Signal or WhatsApp. Um, we haven't seen anyone adopt it yet, but hopefully that's on the way. So this is a, a 1.0 release. Are are there any uh, serious limitations that that you see so far? So I'm, I haven't gone through the code, you know, in a lot of detail. I, I know the people who wrote it. I know the basic design. Um, you know, the, the big question for me is, you know, can it plug into, uh, you know, other people's infrastructure, particularly the database back end, and, and work efficiently? I think we're going to have to see see about that. I Obviously, I don't have the tools here in my professor's office to, you know, test it at the scale of a billion people. I think that's going to be an interesting problem. That's Matthew Green from Johns Hopkins University. In industry news, it appears that the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is taking a close look at what some consider Yahoo's belated disclosure of its two major data breaches. 
The Lloyds Banking Group disclosed that it was affected by a distributed denial-of-service campaign two weeks ago. An unnamed international cybercrime gang is said to be responsible. Disruptions occurred intermittently over a two-day period. Several observers are reminded of the earlier attack on Tesco's banking operations in the U.K. We heard from Ilya Kolichenko, CEO of High Tech Bridge, who strongly urges the victim and the authorities to conduct a quick and thorough investigation. That investigation should bear in mind, Kolichenko says, that DDoS campaigns often serve as misdirection for other, more serious attacks. Kolichenko points out, quote, DDoS attacks are quite simple to organize but very difficult and expensive to mitigate. At the end of last year, even Akamai was obliged to terminate its DDoS protection services for U.S. journalist and investigative reporter Brian Krebs's website, following ongoing and massive DDoS attacks against it, end quote. Akamai is a leading distributed denial-of-service protection vendor. And speaking of DDoS and connected IoT services, the FBI is reported to be interviewing the gentleman security journalist Brian Krebs has identified as the figure behind Mirai. Mirai, of course, is the botnet-herding malware used to clog the Internet last fall. If you haven't read Krebs on Security's long account of how he tracked the spore of the attacker, you should consider doing so. It's an interesting and dismaying story. It also offers a surprising window into the highly competitive world of Minecraft servers and the protection thereof. As is the case with any business highly dependent on availability, a distributed denial-of-service campaign against Minecraft servers or the vendors who support them with DDoS protection can have financially devastating, perhaps business-killing results. And it's precisely this vulnerability, Krebs believes, that Mirai's creator and controller was out to exploit hoping to establish either a competing service or a protection racket. It's also interesting in that the person the FBI is said to be interested in is not a state security service conducting a dry run, or even a well-resourced organized gang of criminals expanding their attack portfolio. Instead, it looks like a guy in a New Jersey dorm room. We won't share the person of interest's name, but we can say this. It's not Anna Senpai. And for you Minecraft fans, it's not Steve either. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. 
Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Um, Jonathan, I wanted to uh, check in with you. I know there is concern that as we head towards uh, what uh, you know, post-quantum cryptography, um, that there are a variety of schemes that people are working on to try to take us past that uh, hurdle. And one of them that I've heard about is called multivariate cryptography. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, right. Uh, as you said, um, people are very concerned about the advent of quantum computers. Uh, we don't know uh, when exactly they're going to become a reality, but people are speculating that they may be uh, deployed in about 20 or 30 years. And because of that, we need to start preparing now. Uh, as you know, and as many of the listeners probably know, uh, all the common public key cryptography used today is based on either factoring or this uh, so-called discrete logarithm problem. And both of those are known to be solvable efficiently by quantum computers. So basically all the current public key crypto on the Internet would be broken uh, if and when we do get quantum computers. And people are looking for, as you said, post-quantum crypto uh, replacements that would be secure uh, even against those computers. So people have been looking at a wide variety of different problems, and these uh, multivariate crypto systems are one uh, among several possibilities that people are looking at. So take us through uh, you know, what, what's going on mathematically under the hood when it comes to multivariate cryptography. Well, as you can imagine, it's hard to give the full details, but just to give an idea <laughs> of the problem, uh, the problem essentially boils down to finding solutions to polynomial equations. So imagine that you're, you're given uh, you know, 10, 20 different quadratic equations in many variables, not in a single variable like back in uh, high school, but these are in, in many variables, and you're asked to find a um, set of solutions that will simultaneously satisfy all the given equations. Now, it's known, actually, that that problem is NP-hard in general, uh, so we don't expect there to be a polynomial time algorithm or an efficient algorithm for ever solving that. Um, of course, that doesn't yet mean that it's ready for cryptographic applications, and there's been a lot of work to try to take that problem and, and map it and derive uh, crypto systems from it. So is, when it comes to this post-quantum cryptography problem, is it, uh, is it kind of a race against time? Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting here is if you think about it, step back and think about it, you think that quantum computers are maybe 30 years off, so we have time to prepare. But then you look actually at how long the process of research and standardization takes, and you realize that actually if we want something to be in place in, in 25 to 30 years, we really need to get started in the next five or 10 years of having things that we can actually imagine standardizing and then rolling out to the Internet. So we don't really have as much time as we might hope. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back.